All right. I'm just going to start because we need to finish this thing. <clears throat> we got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, here we go. Bismillah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Awayna ta'alamu wa ta'alimu wa tadhakuru wa tadhkiru nafahu al-intifa'u al-ifadatu al-istifadu al-hathara al-tamasuki bi kitab Allahi wa sunnati rasulihi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa dua ala al-huda wa dalalata ala al-khair ala al-khair bitigha'a al-mardati Allahi wa wajihihi wa qurbihi wa thawali. Allah muftah alayna bi hikmatik wa nshur alayna bi rahmatik ya ala jalali wa ikram. Bismillah. So we left off last time on the section regarding what kinds of water can be used in order to purify. So we had said that you can uh, purification can be accomplished by what is termed as water, whatever is termed as water. Uh, when things are added to water, oftentimes it will change in its compound. And it will be called something else. So as a general rule, if it's water, you can use it to purify, even if it has changed a little bit through sitting. And we talked about that. Not if it has changed as a result of an impurity falling in it. If an impurity has fallen in it, then that's a problem. It would make it impure. And not water that is um, small in quantity, that uh, an impurity has fallen into, uh, unless that water is moving. If it's moving, then the pure impurity will fall into it, and it'll move, and then you can still use... Like maybe it's a very small creek or something. An impurity falls into it, it goes down, you can use the water after that. The second thing in the water is There's another category of water called They call it used water It means water that has been used For making wudu uh, Or ghusl or whatever it might be Or water that has been used In an act of worship So for example say We have water and we use that water to make wudu. And then afterwards, it's in a container. That water now is considered used. It cannot be used for wudu again. It's a special ruling. Uh, another, but that's the example of it being used for purification. Uh, an example of it being used for an act of worship is that maybe the person already has wudu. They're already in a state of wudu. But they know that the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa used to 
renew his wudu before salah. So even if he was already in a state of wudu, he would renew his wudu, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, before doing the prayer. So maybe a person wants to do that. So now they didn't use that water to remove the ritual impurity. They used that water as an act of worship, which is to just do this extra wudu. In which case, the water would also be considered used, and it cannot be used uh, afterwards for uh, purification. Which takes us then to the section on Faslun fi bayani ahkam tayammum. Section on the rulings of tayammum, tayammum, dry ablution. وَمَنْ عَجَزَ عَنِ اسْتِعْمَالِ الْمَاءِ لِبُعْدِهِ مِيلًا أو لِمَرَضٍ أو بَرْدٍ أو خَوْفٍ تَيَمَّمَ نَاوِيًا بِضَرْبَتَيْنِ مُسْتَوْعِبًا وَجَهُ وَيَدَيْهِ مَعَ مِرْفِقَيْهِ وَلَوْ جُنُبًا أو حَائِدًا أو نُفَسَاء بِطَاهِرٍ مِنَ الْأَرْضِ وَيَنْقُدُهُ نَاقِضُ الْمُوضُوءِ وَانْقُدْرَةُ عَلَى الْمَاءِ الْكَافِي وَلَوْ أَكْثَرُهُ مَجْرُوحًا تَيَمَّمْ وَبِعَكْسِهِ يَغْسِلُ الصَّحِيحَ وَيَمْسَحُ الْجَرِيحَ So this is now the issue of dry ablution. This is <clears throat> person is in a state of ritual impurity and they need to attain a level of ritual purity in order to do their various acts of worship. Uh, especially in this case, prayer, because prayer will become obligatory. So we have to now attain this purity. When And they cannot access water for a number of reasons that will be uh, listed, then what do they do? So he starts off by saying, the one who cannot access water, they cannot use water as a result of distance. Um, distance, basically that like within a kilometer, there's no water that they can access. Um, so they can't access water because of distance or they can't access water because of a sickness. So they can't access water because of distance or they can't access water because of a sickness. Then, uh, or because of, when it comes to the sickness, either it will prolong the sickness or they have very good reason to believe it will cause them to become sick, which is the next one actually, or because of the cold. Um, and these are cases when you wouldn't use water or because of fear, maybe like between them and their watering hole is a lion. And so now they can't access this water that normally they would access because, because of the fear of the danger of that animal, then they would be permitted to make tayammum. So how does one make tayammum? Again, they can't access water because of distance or sickness or extreme cold or out of fear. In any of these cases, then they're able to make tayammum, tayammum, T-A-Y-A-M-M-U-M, tayammum. Uh, and so then the question is, how does one make tayammum? In the Hanifi school, you make intention first. In, in wudu, we didn't have to make intention, actually, as a condition of, of the purification process. And they say largely because water is what's normally used to purify oneself. Um, <clears throat> and it's not like an act of... Uh, they say it's like it's between worship and between... Uh, a normal practice but tayammum is exceptional you know normally you don't use dirt or earth to purify this is an exception that's used in the quran allah says in the quran make your uh intend to make this tayammum also even the meaning of tayammum has the idea of intention so 
First condition is they intend to make tayammum, to purify themselves. Then they would uh, tap the earth or whatever, which we'll talk about in a second. They tap whatever it is that they're, maybe it's some sand, maybe it's some uh, soil, maybe it's something else, which we'll get to. Then they wipe the entirety of their face, everything that would be washed normally. They wipe their face like that. Um, they don't have to have like soil caked on their hands. Okay. And like, don't misunderstand this. We put our hands on the soil. You can even, if there's like soil and stuff afterwards, you can kind of like tap them a little bit and then you wipe the face, uh, all of it. Make sure that everything is covered because you're only wiping once. You have to make sure that everything that you would normally wash is touched by that. Then they would tap the earth again and do their right hand, all of it. Some say like you go like this so that you get one side and then you go like that and you get the other side, you know. Um, but basically the idea here is that they use their hand to cover all of it. Make sure there's no ring because this earth doesn't pass the way water would, right? So there's no ring or anything. And they do like that with their fingers afterwards so that everything that would normally be washed is now covered with, uh, in a sense, that, that the tap, okay? Um, and they can do this. So they would do all of their face, they would do from their fingers up to and including their elbows in the Hanafi school. They can do this if they are in a state of major ritual impurity. They could do this if it was like a woman who finished her monthly cycle and she needed to make uh, purification, but she didn't have access to water. She could make tayammum. Uh, a woman who was as post-bleeding, uh, post-birth post bleeding, she could do this. As, and the condition is that it has to be tahir wa min al-ard. So it has to be pure. When we're talking about the earth and stuff, it means basically you can't see some sort of impurity on it. You don't see like some sort of dog poo on it. You don't have the, uh, this, you know, like uh, you don't see some urine on it or something like that. As long as you don't see it, it's assumed to be clean. And then the second question that's important is what is of the earth? And actually the Hanafi school is a lot broader in this than many others. Uh, in its allowability of what is from the earth, what is from the earth. And so you might travel, for example, like you go to, I think I saw this in maybe in Heathrow. You go to the prayer room in Heathrow for the Muslim prayer room. And in the corner of the room, you see this big rock. It's like maybe like this. It's a big rock. And the idea behind that is if something happened and people are stuck in the airport and there's no access to water, how would they pray? They would go to this rock and they would put their hands on the rock. And that would be sufficient because it's from the earth. It's from the earth. So in defining what is from the earth, they said something interesting. They said that everything that is burned, everything that can be burned by fire and turned to ash, like wood, uh, bark, anything that uh, softens and 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 melts and flows when it's exposed to fire like iron copper and gold and silver and anything that the earth uh, eats itself decomposes into the earth in a sense like barley and flour things like this then and, and different types of seeds then all of those things are not considered from the earth all of those things are not considered from the earth um so that's your that's your that's your guideline. 
Okay, so is the rock considered part of the earth? If I burn it, does anything happen? Nothing happens. That's from the earth. Uh, the soil, if I put fire onto the soil, is anything going to happen? It's still soil. It's earth. Sand, it's still sand. It's, it's considered from the earth. Uh, but if it's like a tree, you put the tree, obviously it burns, right? So it's considered from the earth if these things don't happen to it. It doesn't burn and turn to ash. It doesn't melt or, or flow. Uh, it doesn't decompose. If it doesn't do any of those things, then it's basically from the earth. Uh, and then that can be used for tayammum. Um, what's also considered from the earth is like dust. So the dust that you would normally... So they say, like, for example, like a wall, normally you can't touch the wall and make tayammum. Um, but if your wall was, uh, it had like some discernible dust on it, theoretically you could. Uh, you could touch that dust and use that to make tayammum. Tayammum is broken by everything that breaks wudu. Everything that breaks wudu breaks tayammum, as well as the ability to uh, use a sufficient amount of water. So maybe someone doesn't have access to water, they make tayammum, they're in this state of purity, and then they come across water. At that point, immediately their, pure, their state of purity is broken and they have to use the water to uh, purify themselves. If most of the person is wounded, if most of the person is wounded, then they make tayammum. If uh, most of the person is not wounded, then uh, they would wash that which is not wounded and they wipe over that which is wounded. And if they're not able to wipe over it, then they just wipe over like their uh, cast or whatever else it might be, you know? Um, I had this issue when I had, I had a wound that I got moving some stuff in the medjlis one time and it was like a slit, you know? <clears throat> And it was right there on my hand. So it came up all the time in trying to do purification and stuff, you know. So I'd have to kind of like put the thing on it to to hold it closed. And then the Band-Aid was on there. And I had to just, just wipe over the Band-Aid because that's the best that I could do. Um, because if you get water on it, then it's not going to heal, right? The, these kind of wounds. So that's Tayammum. That is Tayammum. Uh, which almost brings us to the end of purification. We want to try to finish today purification and prayer, and then we'll just stop this. Well, however long it takes us to get to purification and prayer, we're going to do today. And we'll leave um, maybe fasting and zakat and stuff for another time, or for people who might be more specialized in it. So, فَصْلٌ فِي مُطَهِّرَاتِ النَّجَاسَةِ وَيَطْرُ الْبَدْنُ وَالثَّوْبُ بِالْمَاءِ وَبِكُلِّ مَاءٍ مُزِيلٍ والخف بالدلك والسيف والنحو بالمسح والأرض باليبس والذهاب الأثري وعفي عن قدر الدرهم من المغلظة كالدم وبول ما لا يؤكل والروث والروث وعن ما دون ربع الثوب من المخففة كبول ما يؤكل لحمه So this is now a section on those things. How do you purify impurities? How do you purify impurities? So we talked about um, wudu and ghusl and stuff like that. That, re that refers to ritual impurity. How do I purify actual impurities, like actual physical impurity? The body and clothing are purified by water and by any liquid that is purifying. So maybe you have like a compound of water and soap and stuff like that. 
And that's what you're using now to purify yourself. As long as it purifies the body, gets the, gets the impurity off the body, gets the impurity off the clothes, then that is sufficient. Because like, look, we said the water, when you add certain things to it, it changes its ruling, right? So if you have a washing machine full of water and you dump a cup of uh, detergent into it, is it actually water now? It's not really water. It's not pure water. It's water now mixed with detergent. But as long as that removes the impurity, then that can be used to clean the body. Not in terms of wudu, in terms of like, I have some urine on my hand. I need to get this urine off my hand. I'm not making wudu now. I'm removing a physical impurity. So to remove that physical impurity from my body, to remove the physical impurity from clothing, you can use water or any liquid that is purifying, like an alcohol wipe, for example. Yeah, good. Baby wipe, you know, stuff like that. A khuf, the leather footgear, khuf is purified by like uh, scratching whatever's off it, off it. This is mentioned in a text. That's why it says that. So maybe there's like some, you kind of like think of a shoe. Maybe sometimes you get like some, sh some poop on your shoe, dog poop or something on the shoe, right? You can just wipe it off, wipe it off, rub it off until it gets off. Um, a sword and things similar to it are cleaned by wiping. A sword and things similar to it is basically things that are not porous. So a sword, uh, a cooking utensil, like a pot, a pan, uh, one of those flat grills. You know, this is actually a really re relevant issue, right? So what cleans the flat grill? Do they have to like soap it if there was bacon on it or something? Do they have to soap it? Or if they like, you know, scraped it off and wiped it, is it clean now? If they scraped it off and wiped it, it's clean. So just wiping is cleans a, a sword and things similar to it. The earth is cleaned by drying and its sign, like the uh, any sign of the presence of the impurity goes away and it dries. So maybe like a dog pees somewhere. And then it dries, and there's no sign of the urine. Then it's it's considered tahid. After that, it's considered pure. Ritual, like the rulings of purity and stuff, are not necessarily um, like they have their own rules. These are these are these are there from the Sharia, they're from the guidance of the Prophet them from the text of the Quran. Someone might say, "Well, that still sounds dirty to me." Okay, then don't use it or don't do it. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about what can be used for certain things. Can I pray on it or not? Okay, it's a different, maybe, maybe you don't want to like, you know, I don't know, use it for your facial, but like you could pray on it if you had to, it wouldn't be considered impure. The amount of a dirham, so they break up uh, impurities into major impurities and minor impurities, or let's say gross impurities and light impurities, gross impurities and light impurities. Uh, there's probably better words for it, but you get the idea. Gross impurities, an amount of one dirham, which they say is like the equivalent of the inside of your palm, is pardoned. Is pardoned. So this would be things like blood, uh, urine of that which we do not eat, and feces. So blood, feces, and the urine of animals that we don't eat. So any animal we don't eat, blood, feces, these are considered major impurities. Uh, the amount of a dirham is forgiven.
is pardoned. So maybe someone has like a small wound and it bleeds onto their shirt and it has like, there's a blood stain on their shirt that's like this big. Can they still pray in it? Yes, they can still pray in it. They can still pray in it. Okay, it's, it's pardoned if it's less than this amount. If it is um, the urine of an animal that we eat, the urine of like a, a cow, for example, then as long as it's less than a fourth of the garment, it is pardoned. So it can actually be a large amount. Fourth of the garment is up to a fourth of the garment is pardoned. So maybe you're in like an old town where animals walk in the street. There's no cars. You walk in the street, animals walk in the street, the dirt in the street. You know, there's maybe a puddle of animal urine or something. It splashes. It gets on like the whole bottom of your leg gets covered in urine and you're like just going to pray. Can you pray or not? If it's less than one fourth of the garment, then you can still pray. It's pardoned. Okay. This is on purifying these uh, impurities. The next section is on the rulings of purifying oneself after using the restroom. After using the restroom. So he says, so he says uh, that to um, um, he says that <clears throat> purifying <clears throat> oneself after using the restroom is a recommended act, and that you should they would use in the past they would use stones and stuff like that. So you could use a stone now you use toilet paper obviously toilet paper or or if you use water that's better. They always say here that this is referring to, you know, forgive me, we have to be detailed on some of these things. This is referring to the actual point from which impurities leave the body. So the actual point from which impurities leave the body, you can wipe with the tissue, you can use water would be better. And, you know, that's, you should do that. However, if uh, that impurity has reached any part of the body that is not only the exit point, then it must be removed with water. Because now we're talking about an impurity that's on the body. So maybe like some, you know, whatever. I don't have to give examples. You understand the point. And this is why, generally speaking, like the practice of Muslims in all different places is that they'll use water when they clean themselves. Because usually... The impurity that leaves our body doesn't only affect exactly the exit point, right? It usually affects something else as well. So in order to fully clean ourselves, then we use toilet paper and we use water. Maybe we use some sort of combination of toilet paper and water. The idea is that we clean uh, ourselves when we do that so that when we go to pray, we don't have any sort of impurities on us. Uh, this practice of cleaning oneself should not be done with, with bones or with any sort of like animal droppings you know sometimes they have these dried animal droppings that can be used for different things don't do that uh, facing the qibla or turning one's back from it is also disliked he says here in the book when in in like an outdoors area 
But in reality, in the Hanafi books, generally, um, they don't limit that to a place that's outside. They say if you're inside, you're outside, wherever it is, you should try not to face the Qibla or turn your back on the Qibla when using the restroom. Uh, obviously, we don't always have like a whole lot of control over this, right? Like however the place was built is generally how it's built. And, you know, so maybe that's why he put that that way, uh, perhaps just out of like, uh, the 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 like it's everyone's afflicted by this you don't have any control over it you just have to you know do your best so maybe that's why he put that conditioned it on it being outside like in the middle of nowhere right you're in a um national park or whatever and you're just out by yourself and you choose a spot to use the restroom don't face the qibla don't face don't turn your back on the qibla no speaking while using the restroom is also disliked like prohibitively disliked as is facing the sun or the moon or relieving oneself under a fruit bearing tree relieving oneself under a fruit bearing fruit bearing tree is also disliked and there's other things that are disliked in some of the bigger books but he suffices with that so this brings us to the end of the section on purification brings us to the end of the section on purification alhamdulillah now we move to salah move to salah again as i said before this is according to the hanafi school uh you only get this kind of detail when you go when you study it on a madhab we were like well why do you need this detail why don't you just tell me what i'm supposed to do in order to make wudu why do i have to know this thing's the required thing and wudu this thing's the recommended thing and wudu why do i have to know which thing in salat is the required part which thing in salat is the disliked part or the just the part that's good to do the reason is because of the possibilities that stem from that. So, okay, I made a mistake. Is this mistake something that requires me to start prayer all over again? Is this something that requires me to um, make sujood sahu, to make a prostration of forgetfulness? Is this something that doesn't require anything from me because it was just something that's nice to do in Salah, but it's not required to do, so on and so forth. So these breakdowns you get in the books of the Madhabs. And um, they're very practical, they're very useful. So he starts off by saying, Kitabu Salah, Shara'it As-Salah, Shara'itu As-Salah, Shara'ituha, Taharut al-Badan min al-Hadithi wal-Khabathi, wa Taharut al-Thawbi wal-Makani, wa Satru al-Awrati, wa Istiqbal al-Qiblati, wal-Waqtu, wal-Niyyatu, wal-Tahrima. So he starts off by saying, what are the conditions of Salah? What are the conditions of prayer, of this ritual prayer? The condition is something that is required and precedes the prayer and is not actually part of the prayer. So this is a shart. A rukn is a pillar, which is something that is required and it's part of the prayer itself. This is something that's required and it precedes the prayer. Okay, so the first thing is that one's body and clothing are, are free from impurities, are free from impurities, their body and their clothing. Second condition is that, um, I'm sorry, the first condition is that their body is free from impurity. Second condition is that their clothing and place of prayer is, pure, is, is free from impurity. Clothing and place of prayer are free from impurity. When we say that the place of prayer has to be free from impurity, what are we talking about exactly? Are we talking about the entirety of the space that like the prayer mat covers? Are we talking about particular spots? 
So actually, what's what's the actual requirement is that the place where we stand and the place where our knees would fall and the place where our hands would fall in sujood and the place where our forehead is, all of those have to be clean. If, for example, someone goes to make sujood and there's an impurity that's like below their chest, but it's not where their hands fall, it's not where their knees fall, it's not where their forehead is, their feet are, so on, then that wouldn't be an issue. The issue is that if it's on those places, the feet, knees, hands, and forehead. Number three condition of salah is that one covers their aura. There covers their aura. For a man, this is everything that is from right below the belly button to below the knee. Uh, absolute minimum, although you probably shouldn't pray like that because as will come later, it's not really like the most respectable way to pray. Uh, but it would it would fulfill the absolute minimum of covering one's private parts, their aura. Uh, for a woman, this is everything except for her face and her hands and her feet in the Hanafi school. Her face and her hands and her feet. Everything else should be covered in Salat as a requirement. Uh, meaning, if that doesn't happen, then the validity of the Salat comes into question in the first place. Number four is that the Qibla is faced, that we face the Qibla. We face the Qibla. What's very important here is that they distinguish between a person who is right in front of the Kaaba versus someone who's not. So someone who's in front of the Kaaba such that they can actually see it, then their job is to really face the Kaaba. Okay, they have to really face the Kaaba. If the person is such that they're not, uh, they can't see the Kaaba, then what's required of them is that they turn towards the Kaaba, turn towards the Kaaba. They don't have to actually face it directly. Sometimes you see this in Salat, people are like, brother, it's like one degree, one degree, one degree, fix it, two degrees, three degrees, you know? This is actually not required. Um, it's not even really necessary. In fact, many of the old Masajid and stuff, they were off by a few degrees, intentionally. It wasn't that the people didn't have knowledge or something. Was that you put it in a particular? They're not. Re, you're not required to directly hit the Kaaba. You're required to face the direction of the Kaaba. It's gonna matter. For example, in your house, like maybe in your house, um, there's a wall, and your qibla is like maybe slightly, slight, just slight, maybe five degrees from the wall, ten degrees from the wall. You could face the wall, and you're okay. They say what what matters is if you were to draw your face, right? This is your face. And you're to draw arrows out from your face. As long as one of those arrows hits the Kaaba, you're okay. So actually, like I could face this way and the Kaaba is like this. And my saw is valid. You say it's about 45 degrees, actually. It's about 45 degrees. One, one way, the other way. It's like 90, actually, in the end. Um, but basically, an arrow from the face is hitting this place. I think there's a drawing in one of these books. Um, I wonder if I'll be able to find it really quickly because I don't want to spend too much time on it. Um, uh, it's not in this one. I think it's in the other one. The different drawing in this one. Okay. Um, but the point is, like I said, some arrow arrow comes out of your face and it hits the Kaaba. That's what it means to face the Qibla. Fifth condition is that the time has entered. The time for prayer has entered. The prayer is not valid if the time has not entered. Prayer is not valid if the time has not begun, whatever the time is for that particular prayer. 
the sixth looks like the type there's a typo here. one two three four five six number six is intention we have clear intention for which prayer we're making especially this for if it's an optional prayer it's not as strict because it's optional um, but if it's a obligatory prayer like fajr dhuhr asr maghrib asha then we have to know right now i'm praying dhuhr right now i'm praying asha we have to have that intention when we come to it and the seventh condition is the opening takbir the opening takbir this is allahu akbar with that note we've now we're entered into salah so that's the there's all these conditions that precede it and then there's things that we have to do in salah and the line is allahu akbar takbiratun ihram the takbir that starts the beginning of salat. So these are all the conditions that precede salat. Now he goes on to faslun fi bayani arkanis salat. Now as for the pillars of the prayer itself, the pillars of the prayer itself. Number one is to stand for the person who is able to do so in the obligatory prayer. In the prayers that are optional or recommended, their nafil or their sunnah, standing is not required. One can sit down if they like, and they can pray sitting down. But in the obligatory prayers, either the five daily prayers or witted, then one must stand. One must stand. Um, unless they have some reason why they're not standing. Maybe they're sick, or maybe they have fear that prohibits them from standing. Uh, but otherwise, they have to stand. Uh, if someone's just like outside and they're uncomfortable can they just pray in their car sitting? No, they cannot. They must stand. If they're outside and they actually have a legitimate fear, like they're outside and they happen, prayer time happens to come and they're like right next to a white power rally. Okay, then they probably have a legitimate fear to kind of sit and pray or do whatever else they need to do in that case. But if, if they don't, and that's, it's, it's in the eyes of the person who's experiencing it at some level, but it, it, it should be like an actual legitimate fear. Okay, so standing is number one. Number two is to read at least one ayah in Turaka of the Fard. The Hanafis here are very particular. So in Salat, there are things that are required here, the Rukin, there's the Fard of Salat. The obligation of salat is fard. We have to go with fard. This is the highest kind of obligation. The second highest kind of obligation is wajib. It's wajib. It's also oblig obligatory, but not as high as the other one. Um, so this is the absolute, absolute, absolute requirement is one verse in two rakah of the fard. One verse in two rakah of the fard. That verse can be as short as Hamim. That's a verse. Yasin. That's a verse. Uh, what's the other one they always use? Uh, in Surat um, Al Mudathir. Fakkara wa Qaddar. He thought and he, you know, pondered, whatever. It's very short. Counts as one ayah. Shouldn't do that, by the way. It's going to come later. But this is, again, what is the fad? What is the absolute minimum? Uh, and to read that one verse in all of the raka'at of an optional prayer or recommended prayer, or also in witr. 
Number three condition uh, of like pillar of salat is rukur. This is the bowing, right? The bowing. So we had standing, reciting one verse while standing, bowing. It's third condition. I mean, third uh, third pillar. Fourth pillar of salat is sujud. Fourth is sujud, the prostration. Fifth is to maintain order between standing and bowing and prostration. So you can't like stand and then go to prostration and then come to bowing and say, okay, I finished my rakah. I finished one unit of prayer. No. It's standing, then bowing, then making sujud. And the sixth is to sit at the end of prayer for the amount of tashahud. To sit at the end of prayer. Okay, so these are the absolute, like absolute, absolute, absolute. Next category, which is more important. And I shouldn't say more important. It's uh, Obviously, these are the ones that are absolutely required. So it's, it's not more important. Uh, it's... Like if you miss these things that we just mentioned, the far, your salah is invalidated, you know. It's the easiest way to look at it. Let's just leave it at that right now. There's some details about how it can be done, but if you miss these things, then you kind of have to. You should really kind of do your prayer over, or start it over. Um, the next category is different. These are the wajib. The wajib is something that's required from prayer, but if we miss it. We don't have to do our prayer over. This is these are things that we do sujud sahum for. We do the sujud of prostration. How to do that, we're going to come to later. But the point here is that the category of wajib is a category that if I miss it, I have to do a sujud of prostration. I have to do, I mean of forgetfulness. I have to do a prostration of forgetfulness at the end of salah. So what are these things? Number one is to recite Suratul Fatiha. To recite Suratul Fatiha. Number two, in addition to Surah Al-Fatiha, reciting another surah along with it in the first two rak'ah of Fard. Fard prayers meaning Fajr, Dhuhr, Asr, Maghrib, Asha. And in all of the units of prayer in Nafil or Witr. So if I'm praying like four rak'ah of an optional prayer, in every single one of those four rakah, I'm reading Surah Al-Fatiha and I'm reading a surah after Surah Al-Fatiha. In Salat Al-Witr, in the Witr prayer, which is three units, which will come later as well, three units, every one of those three units, I'm reading Surah Al-Fatiha and a surah after Surah Al-Fatiha. Third wajib, third wajib, is Al-Itmi'nan Fil-Arkan. Al-Itmi'nan Fil-Arkan, which means to... Um, for the body to come to rest in the pillars. So I'm standing, I go to Rukur. I have to stay in Rukur long enough that my body rests. Like it, it comes to a pause. It's not just like standing, boom, boom. It's not enough time. But it's to come here, my body rests, then I come up. This is the wajib. My body rests, I come up. I'm here, I go down to sujood, and I come up. Sujood, come up. So there's a there's a pause at each of the arkan, each of the pillars of salah. That's the third wajib. 
Fourth wajib is uh, the first sitting. The first sitting. So say we're doing a four-unit prayer. We do our first two, and then after the first two, we sit, right? That sitting, the first sitting, is wajib. It's wajib. Um, by the way, there is... Uh, some of these things, obviously, they're hard to recall when you don't have it in front of you. There's another book. It's not this one. This one that I did is not translated. But uh, the, the book that's translated is called Gift for the Seeker. Gift for the Seeker, the same author, uh, Abu Bakr al-Mullah. And you can find it translated. And then you can kind of like see the list. He adds some things in there that are not in here. So this is even less. Uh, it's even easier than the other one. But that's also it's a good reference. Uh, and of course, in English, the best thing is Ascent to Felicity by Sheikh Faraz Khan. He has a lot more detail, but it's it's really excellent. MashaAllah. Sheikh Faraz Khan's book, Ascent, or his uh, translation with uh, footnotes, Ascent to Felicity. Ascent to Felicity. Okay, so the number four was the first sitting. Number five is to say tashahud in both of the sittings. Tashahud is the saying of Atahiyatu lillahi wa salawatu wa tayyibatu Assalamu alayka ayyu nabi wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh Assalamu alayna wa ala ibadillahi salihin Ashadu an la ilaha illallah Ashadu an muhammadun abduhu rasulu That's called At-Tashahud At-Tashahud To say that Tashahud in the first sitting and the second sitting is wajib It's wajib to say it Sixth wajib is to say salam twice at the end of prayer Notice they're very particular. To say salam twice at the end of prayer is wajib. That means you could sit there, you finish your prayer, and you're facing forward, and you say, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. And you fulfilled the wajib. You didn't, you didn't turn your head. You didn't turn your head, right? It will come later that the sunnah, the recommended act, is to turn the head to the right, turn the head to the left when making the salam. So we're like, why do you have this nitpicking? You don't really need all those details. You know why you need those details? Maybe your neck is really hurt. <laughs> like maybe your neck really hurts. Or maybe it's not hurt so bad that you can't move it, but it's just really uncomfortable. It's going to be some pain if you move it. And so you might say to yourself, you know what? Instead of doing it, I'm just going to say, Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. And I'm going to suffice with that. You will have fulfilled the wajib and your salat will be fine. There's no issue in your salat at that point. Um, number seven is to make qunut in witr. Number seven is to make qunut in witr, although we don't raise our hands at Hanafi school. But that's the dua that's made in witr. It's a dua that's made in witr, which when we get to witr, we'll talk about it. Number eight is, uh, number eight and nine are for the imam to say out loud what is supposed to be out loud and to say quietly what is supposed to be quietly. So you're praying Dhuhr, everything's, all the recitation and stuff is quiet. So they'd be quiet for that. If they, by accident, the imam is praying Dhuhr and he reads out loud, recites, starts reciting the Quran. He will probably stop, he realizes it, he stop. At the end of Salah, he needs to make sujood sahum in the Hanafi school. So there's differences between these other schools, but in the Hanafi school, you make this sujood of forgetfulness at the end of Salah if you did that, or vice versa. Maybe they're praying Maghrib, they forget to say it out loud. At the end, they make the prostration of forgetfulness. So these are the wajibat. These are the ones to really focus on. These are the ones to really focus on. They're nine. Reciting the Fatiha, 
reciting two surah, uh, a surah after the Fatiha in the first two raka'at of Fard and in all of the raka'at of the other prayers uh, to have some level of pause at the pillars, the first sitting, tashahud in the first sitting and the second sitting, saying salam twice at the end of salah, uh, making the qunut prayer in, in witr, and the imam saying out loud the things that are supposed to be out loud and silent the things that are supposed to be silent. These are the wajib. These are the wajibat. Nine. Now he goes on to Faslun fi bayani sunan as salat A section on the sunan of salat. The sunnah is that thing that the Prophet them did but is not required. It's not required. So it's recommended. You could say it's recommended. Uh, it's recommended to highly recommended, but it is not required. So that means if you miss it, your prayer is still valid. If you miss it, you do not need to make a sujood of forgetfulness at the end. You don't do so. So what are the sunan? They're going to be more, I believe. Yeah, usually these things are larger in number. So now in the sunan we have... 20, 20 things that are the sunnahs of salah. You'll recognize them. So usually you're doing all these things anyways. First is the adhan and the iqama. The adhan, adhan and the iqama. The call to prayer, that is the longer one. And then the call immediately to prayer. Or you could say like the notification to prayer of the prayer time and the calling to the actual beginning of salah. So... Uh, the Adhan and the Iqama. So this shows you how brief this book is. Like most books, they would say, in the Adhan, this is how you say it. This is the Iqama, this is how you say it, so on and so forth. <coughs> None of that is here. The Adhan is Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. Shadwan la ilaha illallah, shadwan la ilaha illallah, shadwan la Muhammad al-Rasulullah, shadwan Muhammad al-Rasulullah. Hayal al-Salat, hayal al-Salat, hayal al-Falah, hayal al-Falah. But uh, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, la ilaha illallah. That's the other. The iqama in the Hanafi school is the same as the adhan with the addition of qad salah. This is different than the Shafi'is, for example. It's very common in Masajid in America is the Shafi'i way. Shafi'i and Hanbali way, which is like half of the adhan with the addition of qad salah. But the Hanafi iqama uh, is the same as the adhan with the addition of qad qamat as-salat. So you would say, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Shalom la ilaha illallah, Shalom la ilaha illallah, Shalom Muhammad Rasulullah, Shalom Muhammad Rasulullah, Hayal al-Salati, Hayal al-Salat, Hayal al-Falahi, Hayal al-Falah, qad qamat as-salat, qad qamat as-salat, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, la ilaha illallah. That would be the qamat. Okay, so both of those are sunnah. Raising the hands when saying the opening takbir. Raising the hands when saying the opening takbir. The Hanafi school, they say you get your thumbs to like by your earlobes. Allahu Akbar. For women, they keep it lower. But for men, they put it higher. Allahu Akbar. Raising the hands when making that opening takbir. Athana. Uh, Athana is the saying of Subhanakallahumma bihamdik wa tabarak asmuk wa ta'ala jadduk wa la ilaha khayruk. It's a dua. Before in the very beginning of salah, that's called the thana, it's recommended. At-ta'awwud is to say, A'udhu billahi min ash-shaytan rajim before reciting. 
Quran. It's also recommended. At-Tasmiyah. At-Tasmiyah is to say, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Okay. It's not required. It's not actually part of Fatiha in the Hanafi school. The schools differ. People in the Masajid sometimes they get wild on this stuff. Why didn't you say Bismillahirrahmanirrahim before you read the Fatiha? Open the Mus'haf. Look at the Mus'haf. The Mus'haf has... Let's see what's in the Mus'haf, actually. The Mus'haf has Bismillah as Ayah 1. Because they made a choice when they did the Mus'haf, but that doesn't mean it's Ayah 1. There's actually Khilaf. Is that Ayah 1 or not? If it's not Ayah 1, they split the last one into two. Anyways, point is, for the Hanafis, Tasmiyah, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, is recommended, it's not required. At-ta'minu sirran, at-ta'minu sirran, which means after the Fatiha to say Ameen. To say Ameen after the Fatiha and to do so quietly. In the Hanafi school, you do it quietly. وَوَضِعُ يَمِينِهِ عَلَى يَسَارِهِ To place the right on the left. Place the right on the left when holding. Uh, saying Allahu Akbar when going to Ruku'ah. This is Sunnah. You should do it, but it doesn't require anything if you miss it. Saying Allahu Akbar when going to Ruku'ah. In Ruku'ah, saying Tasbih three times. SubhanAllah. Subhanu Rabbil Azim. Subhanu Rabbil Azim. Subhanu Rabbil Azim. Three times. Other sunnah, excuse me, is to uh, hold one's knees in rukua. Hold one's knees in rukua. Next sunnah, number 10, 11. 11 is to spread the fingers in when they're on their knees. When you're on your knees in rukua, to spread the fingers, not to have them together. Spread them. So, you know, hold your knee. Uh, number 12 is to straighten the back. So when they make rukua, not to like, you know, to it like this, but to do it flat, to flatten the back in rukua. Number 13 is uh, to come up from rukua. Interesting, huh? Coming up from rukua is sunnah. Sometimes you see people do that. They go to rukua and then they kind of like half go and then they go. You'll be like, oh my God, they missed this. Thing. The coming up from it afterwards in the Sunni school and the Hanafi school is sunnah. Number 14 is for the imam to say, and for the one who's following the imam, the, so the imam only says that part. The one who's following the imam only says, and the person who's praying by themselves does both. And Number 15 is to say takbir, Allahu Akbar, when going to sujood and when coming up from it. Number 16 is to do the subhanallah in sujood. Uh, number seven is for the man to, when they make sujood, to have their elbows not connected to their body, to have them out a little bit, and to make sure that their forearm is not uh, on the ground, and to not make prostration such that their thighs are connected to their stomach, so the, the, the body is like a little bit separated, it's not all together. Unless you don't have space, obviously. But if you have space, you do it in a way like that. Number 18 is to sit um, in iftirash. Iftirash is when you put your left foot flat horizontally under your backside. And you sit with your right foot 
um, it's really hard to explain this, but people have seen it, I'm sure. There's all, all kinds of pictures online. You sit on your left foot, basically, and your right foot is up. Your right foot is up. This is recommended. Uh, it's not required. It's called iftirash. Iftirash. Number 19 is to read Fatiha in the rakahs that are after the first two in the fard. So in the previous one, we said that you read Fatiha in the first two of the fard. So what about the other two? It's recommended to read it in the other two after the fard. In the Hanifi school, you can actually do other things. You can say like, Uh, I think it's subhanAllah or I don't remember actually if it's subhanAllah or alhamdulillah. Basically, you can make the normally you wouldn't do that, of course, but you might do it, for example, if you're um, like running out of time or if you're making up missed prayers and you have a lot of them to make up and you want to make it easier, you could do that. Um Uh, number 20 is to make salah on the Prophet in the final sitting as well as dua. So after you say tashahud, then you say Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi Sayyidina Muhammad or Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala alihi Muhammad kama salli'ta ala Ibrahim wa ala alihi Ibrahim fil alamin innaka hamidun majid. That's the salah on the Prophet. You do it in the last sitting along with dua afterwards, also recommended. And then to turn to the two sides when you say salam. So these are all the sunnah. If we look at it, we say, okay, put all these things together. That's generally how we pray, right? You put all those things together. That's generally how we pray. But it tells us which one is which, which, which level of priority does each of those things have. Next section is Bayanu Mufsidat As-Salat. Bayanu Mufsidat As-Salat. There's still hope. There's still hope. Bayan Mufsidat As-Salat. Number one thing that breaks those things that invalidate the prayer. They invalidate the prayer. So first thing that invalidates the prayer is speech or dua that resembles speech. Speech or dua that resembles speech. The speech is clear, right? You're standing in prayer. Hey, man, how's it going? Salat is broken. But even making dua in the Hanifi school, even making dua that resembles regular speech breaks the prayer. So what does it mean? It means like you make dua in a way, you're asking for things that human beings can give you. You're asking for things that are not really like so serious. You know, um, this is why generally they say in the Hanafi school, you should make dua, especially in the Fard, with the duas that are from the Sunnah, from the Quran, stuff like that. But let it be something serious. Uh, number two is this, uh, to, to respond, to greet someone with salam. Or to say salam like outside of the end of salat, or to respond to salam. Someone you're praying, someone comes in, they say salam alaikum. You say alaikum salam. This would break your salat. Number three is what they call al amal al kathir. This one is important to talk about a little bit. It's uh, a lot of movement, a lot of movement. Some of the later books in the madhhab they define that as basically like three things that were unnecessary in like one obligatory part of salat so if someone's like standing in salat and they start like messing with their sleeves and you know doing their buttons and stuff then they would consider that that the salat is broken 
However, the easier um, or kind of like the the earlier books, what they say, and it's in the Madhab too, is what is it? Amal al-Kathir? Al-Amal al-Kathir is you're doing something such that if someone looked at you, they would doubt that you're in prayer. So they would be like, hmm, I don't know if he's really praying or not. Because like, look at him, he's fixing all his buttons and he's doing all this stuff. But if someone's like clearly praying, but they're just fixing something or they're doing something that it's still clear that they're praying, then it's not considered to be this excessive movement. Okay. Number four is to uh, move the chest away from the qibla. So if you actually move your head in salat, but your chest is still straight, your salat is still fine. But it's the chest. If the chest moves from the qibla, then it invalidates the salat. Eating or drinking invalidates salat. Coughing for no reason. Obviously, if you have something and you cough, it's okay. But if you're just like, you know, kids always do this. <coughs> and they're like messing around in Salat. They always do this coughing thing, right? So if you're coughing for with no excuse, then that breaks the Salat. Uh, moaning and kind of groaning and stuff. Oh, oh, stuff like that. This also breaks the Salat. Um, crying really loud from pain or from like a trial that you're going through or something. And not from the Salat. So if the person's in Salat and they're just like really affected by Salat and they're totally overcome and they're crying like heavily, that's okay. But if it's like their foot's in pain and they're crying and they're making like loud sounds from their, not just like tears coming down, but they're making sounds because of that. Something Because of that, something that's outside of Salat and they bring that into Salat, then that would break their Salat. Uh, to say Alhamdulillah to someone who sneezes and uh, to respond to someone else's speech even if it's through dhikr even if it's through dhikr what matters here is your intention so if someone says why some of these are mentioned is because when someone sneezes right and they say Alhamdulillah and then you say Alhamdulillah Allah have mercy on you that's a dhikr. And dhikr is part of salat. So does that break your salat or not? And they're saying it does. Because you're responding to something outside of salat. Basically, you're having a conversation outside of salat. Um, same thing with responding to the speech. Even if you make dhikr to say it. So if someone says like, hey, how are you? And you say, alhamdulillah. You've, you had conversation outside of Salah, even though you use something that you use in Salah. Or someone says, oh, that thing was so amazing. And you say, subhanAllah, but you're in prayer. SubhanAllah is something you normally would say in prayer, right? But in this case, you're responding to someone else, so it breaks the Salah. وَفَتْحُهُ عَلَى غَيْرِ إِمَامِهِ فَتْحُهُ عَلَى غَيْرِ إِمَامِهِ Is to, uh, when someone makes a mistake in their recitation and you correct them, if you do that to someone who's not the imam, so like you're in salat, someone else is sitting in the masjid, maybe reciting, and you hear them make a mistake and you correct their mistake, and you're in prayer, then that would break the prayer. And to read from the mushaf invalidates prayer in the Hanafi school, to read from the mushaf, to hold the, hold the Quran and read from it. Again, we're talking about one method here. There's other opinions, so on and so forth. That's fine. We're just talking about what is it in one method?
All right, now he goes into the long section. I'm just going to go through these quickly. These are the things that are disliked to do in Salat. These are things that are disliked to do in Salat. That's a long list. It's like, he actually goes shorter here. He only mentions 28. But these are things that you should avoid doing in Salat. Number one, playing around with your clothes or your body. Number two, putting like your arm on your hip type thing. You know, put your elbow up. Number three, looking around. Your chest is staying in the qibla, but you're looking around for no reason. Dislike. Uh, number four is to... Um, Kind of like it's kind of like a squat so instead of sitting the way you would normally sit you kind of like squat this would be disliked uh number five is to tie one's hair like for a man if a man has long hair then when they pray they're supposed to let their they're supposed to like take their open their ponytail basically or un unweave it. if they have like a dread or something that's different but if they have if it's just tied it sh they should untie it when they pray the prophet size on them used to do this uh, number six is to tie the turban, to wear a turban, but the, like you have your, you tie the turban and the, the head is open in the middle. That's disliked. They would put a hat on and then they tie the turban around the hat. Number eight is for the clothes to go below the ankle. For clothes to go below the ankle. There's some conversation on that, but we'll just leave it at this. Number nine is to wear clothes that are kind of like, you know, uh, not uh, maybe like looked down upon, like house clothes. They're not really like the most proper kind of clothes. It's not good to pray in such things. That's why many Muslim families and stuff, uh, especially in old kind of like Muslim lands and things, they have like prayer outfits, you know. I have whatever I'm wearing around my house. And then when I come to pray, I throw the stove on and I wear the stove, for example. Also disliked is to pray when holding back and when having to need, having a need to use the restroom. Uh, also to close one's eyes. You can mostly close them, just not completely close. Number 12 is to look up at the sky. Number 13 is to wipe the dirt off the person off your head like every time you make sujood you wipe your head for example if there's really something there you need to wipe it that's different but like every time you're wiping it it's not good uh, wearing a clothing that has uh, pictures on it pictures that have um souls like like animals or humans or something not necessarily like a tree or whatever <clears throat> Leaning on a wall or something else without a need is disliked. Uh, praying towards someone else's face is disliked. So maybe like the imam turns around after salat and then you make your salat right facing the imam. It's not so good. Um, or in the direction of fire. Or to pray in the road. So you're blocking the pathway now. Or to pray in the bathroom or to pray on a grave. Um, uh, in someone else's on someone else's land without their consent or without their uh, I guess you, not necessarily content but like and they don't want you to do it they don't want you to do that 
um, to pray when food has been presented that they have an inclination towards, to pray with an impurity on their, an impurity that allows prayer. Uh, prayer is allowed with it, but it's better to remove it. You know? um, reciting Quran in anywhere other than standing, making the second rakah longer than the first rakah, first one. You know, usually longer. The second one for the second one to be longer than the first one is dislike. To repeat the same surah after Fatiha in both of the raka for no reason. Uh, to prostrate on the band of their turban. So you know when you tie the turban, it goes across. To prostrate on that is disliked if it like basically it's covering their forehead, right? So to do that is disliked. Unless there's a reason like it's hot or it's cold or the earth is like really dangerous or something. Maybe it's hard. Um, but he says in the footnote that if they prostrate on their turban and they can still feel kind of like the firmness of the earth, then that's okay. That's okay. It's not disliked. But some of these turbans are like really, really, really big. They wrap it, 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 wrap it. And then they go to make sujood and you can't even feel the ground. That's a problem. So your forehead now is not really doing what it's supposed to do in Salah. <clears throat> uh, only prostrating with the forehead on the ground and not the nose without any reason to do so. So generally we want the forehead and the nose to be on the ground. Those are all of the dislike things in Salah. So alhamdulillah, this now we finished we finish the Salah as a whole. Now he's going to go through some of the specific kinds of Salah like witr and optional things and janaza and stuff like that. So we'll go through these. Uh, first one is witr. Witr in the Hanafi school is wajib. Witr in the Hanafi school is wajib, meaning if you do not pray it, you have to make it up and you're sinful. You have to make it up and you're sinful. Hanafis are unique in this. It is uh, witr in the Hanafi school is three rak'ah. It looks just like maghrib. So you pray two, you pray two, Fatiha Surah, sit, stand for the third, Fatiha and a Surah, and this one, Fatiha and a Surah. And then before going to Ruku'ah, we do Qunut. So, you know, oftentimes in like the Masajid and stuff, people pray kind of like in a Shafi'i or Hanbali kind of way, which is they... They they um, often will do one unit of witr, like they do two before with salam, and then they do one by itself, and they do the witr dua after coming up from rukua. The Hanafi way is witr is three rakah, sit after the second, stand after the third, fatiha and a surah, and before you go to rukua, you lift your hands, you say Allahu Akbar, and you cross them again, and when you cross them again, you make the dua of qunut. Uh, and there's different variations on that. The absolute minimum, minimum of it, minimum of it is Allahumma. So you know, make some dua here, and then after that, you go to rukua and you finish the salat like you would normally finish the salat. And you pray witr in congregation in Ramadan. Pray witr in congregation in Ramadan. Um, in the Hanafi school, when you pray witr in congregation in Ramadan, you, you lead it just the way I just described. And you would read out loud for all three rak'at. 
Fatihana Surah, Fatihana Surah, sit up, Fatihana Surah. You say Allahu Akbar, you cross your hands, you make the dua silently. And then you make ruku, and then you finish the salah. As for those prayers that are highly recommended, so they're not required, they're not fard, the five, and they're not witr, which is wajib, which is wajib, they're the other prayers. So the highly recommended ones, the highly recommended ones are two rakah before fajr, two rakah after dhuhr, two rakah after maghrib, two rakah after isha, four rakah before dhuhr, and four rakah before jumu'ah, and four rakah after jumu'ah. So what again in the Hanafi school, what are the highly recommended sunnah prayers? Two before Fajr, two after Dhuhr, two after Maghrib, two after Isha. Four before Dhuhr, four before Jumu'ah, and four after Jumu'ah. These are highly recommended. Sunnah prayers. So, so these ones that are four, Sunnah prayers, you read Fatiha and Surah in every single rakah. If you do not, you missed one of the wajib, you have to make Sujood Sahum, which is the next section. So you pray in all of them. Then there's another category of salat that are not sunnah. They're called mustahab. They're called mustahab. They're emphasized, but not in the same way. They're not highly emphasized. They're good to do. You don't have to do them. They're good to do. Those are four before asr. Uh, four before asha. Four after asha. Four after dhuhr. And six after maghrib. Six after maghrib. Four before Asan, four before Esha, four after Esha, four after Dhuhr, and six after Maghrib. Those are all mustahab. They're called mustahab. They're recommended, but they're not like, you know, highly recommended. All right. So those are all of the prayers, which takes us to the last two sections. I think it's two. Yeah. The prayer, the prostration of forgetfulness and janazah. Prostration of forgetfulness and janazah. باب سجود السهو يجب سجدتان بتشهد وسلام بترك واجب سهو وإن تكرر ويلزم المأموم بسهو إمامه لا بسهوه ومن سهى عن القعود الأول عاد إليه ما لم يقوم وإن سهى عن الأخير عاد ما لم يسجد فإن سجد صار فرده نفلا وضم سادسا وإن قعد الأخير ثم قاد قام عاد وسلم فإن سجد أتم فرده وضم إليها سادسة وسجد للسهم. So, what is this prostration for forgetfulness? So you miss a wajib, or also like delay going to a fard, they're going to a wajib. Maybe you didn't miss like anything, but just. Uh, you know, you finished your reciting, and then you just sat there. And they're like, oh, I need to go to Rukua. So you said, Allah, Akbar, you went to Rukua. You didn't miss anything, but you delayed going where you were supposed to go. This also makes for uh, a prostration of forgetfulness. In the Hanafi school, interestingly, he doesn't actually go into the detail here. Uh, 
subhanAllah. It's actually very interesting that he didn't do that. But he says that it is to make two prostrations. With tashahud and salam. For leaving a wajib, even if there are multiple ones that you missed, you make one prostration, or I mean one set of prostration of forgetfulness, even if you miss multiple wajib. How does this look in the Hanafi school? You get to the end of your salat, you finish salat like you would normally finish salat, you get to right when you're about to say salam. And you have to make this prostration of forgetfulness. Okay. So what do you do? You say assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah to one side only. And you come and you're now in the and you say Allahu Akbar and you make sujood. Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar. Now you're sitting and you make tashahud everything over again. And then you say salam to both sides. This is how you do in the Hanafi school. Um, the common way that people do this in the masajid is they go all the way to the end of salat and then they say Allahu Akbar and they do the two sujood and then they say salam, right? If I'm not mistaken, even this way is valid in the Hanafi school, but it's not the way that we're encouraged to do it. The way that we're encouraged to do it is to do the one salam and then to do the two prostrations and then to repeat the tashahud and the dua and the salat, salat and the Prophet and dua and then say salam again to both sides. Why I mentioned the other thing is maybe you're leading salat in the masjid or something. People are not accustomed to doing it this way and you just want to do it the way that everyone's accustomed to doing it. It's okay. Just do it that way. It's fine. Like even for me, if I'm leading salat, Usually, if, if there's a mistake or something, it depends. Like, if I was in the majlis, I would do it the Hanafi way. Because people are, we're trying to teach people to kind of like be accustomed to slight variations here. And you have to trust your imam and so on and so forth. But if I was like in a regular masjid and um, that happened, then even still, like as a Hanafi, I would do the, I would do it the way that people are accustomed to. So... Um, just pointing that out there. Another detail here is that if you're praying a four rakat prayer and you forget to sit after the second, right? So normally you would sit after the second. If you forget to sit after the second and you go to stand, you go back to sitting as long as you haven't stood. If you actually stood, then you don't go back to sitting. You just continue the salat and make sujood at the end. You just continue and make sujood at the end. Why? Because the standing is now an obligation and the sitting is a wajib. So now that you're all the way into the obligation, you don't leave the obligation. You don't leave the fard for the wajib. You don't leave the fard for the wajib. But as long as you're not into the fard yet, then you can still go back to the wajib. The other note here is in the Hanifi school, what they say is if the person forgets to sit down after four, for example, let's just go with four. They forget to sit down after four. And they stand up and they start to pray another rakah. As long as they haven't made sujood yet, they go back and they sit. And they finish the salat and they make sujood of forgetfulness, right? If they stand up for a fifth and they go down and they make sujood, 
they didn't sit at all after the fourth. They stand up for the fifth. And they finish all of the fifth rakah, including a sujood. Then they remember. Then they add another rakah. And uh, the whole thing becomes optional. Like it, it, all, it all counts as nafil. It all counts as nafil. But they have to pray their fard over again. Because they didn't sit at the end. They didn't sit. Remember we said from the fard is to sit at the end. So they didn't sit at the end and they went to the sujood. So now the whole thing, they, they add another one so that it becomes six. And all of that becomes nafil. If they're praying for rakah, for example, they sit after the fourth. And then they get up and they start to pray a fifth. Okay. Then they remember before they go to sujood or anything, they sit down and they finish. And they make sujood seven. If they sit after four, then they get up and they start to pray five. Then they make sujood in the fifth. If you think about the stuff that we covered, it's actually logical. It's confusing. Believe me, like I've covered this many, many times. It's confusing. But um, if we, say, we think about this issue, the issue was what are from the fara'id of salat? One of the fard of salat was that you sit at the end of salat, the amount of tashahud. So now, if the person prayed four, they sat. And they got up and they started to pray five. They didn't remember that it was extra. They finished whole fifth rakah, they made sujood. Then they remembered. They're now they're six. They're up for now for number six. They remember. What do they do? They add one more rakah so that those two, so that after the four is those two, those two become nafil, and the fard is complete. Because when they sat after four, they finished all of the obligations of salah. So that becomes fard, and those other two become sunnah. Inshallah, this never happens to you <laughs> i have had cases like this where someone was like well, what if this happens and we're in jama'ah and this and this and like it happened it happened to them you know yesterday we we're praying and this happened and so on and so forth if it ever like you know <clears throat> err on the side of caution but hopefully you remember before you make a sujood if you remember before you make sujood it's no problem like that's one thing you can remember if you stand up for an extra one there's no sujood do you remember just sit back down and finish the salat and make sujood of uh, forgetfulness at the end that is sujood of forgetfulness last section in salah and this is where we're going to stop this uh, this series is on salatul janazah salatul janazah the funeral prayer funeral prayer funeral prayer has two major conditions number one condition is that the person who passed away was a muslim number two condition is that they're in a state of purity someone washed the body They're a Muslim, the body's been washed. Except in the case of like a shaheed. There's, there's, this is very, very basic. But generally speaking, they're Muslim, the body's been washed. Normal cases like that. The pillars of janazah are the takbirs that we say and standing. The takbirs that we say and standing. So we stand if we're able to stand. And we say the takbirat. And we raise our hands. Uh... In the first one. And then after that, in the Hanafi school, you don't raise your hands. I'll go through it in detail after we go through the sunnahs. The sunnahs are a thana after the first takbir, 
Remember in the beginning of Salah, we said it there, Subhanakallahum bihamdik nishan. Tabarak asmuk, ta'ala jadduk, la ilaha gairuk. That's the tana. Second one is to do Salah on the Prophet them after the second takbir. Dua after the third takbir. And after the fourth takbir, you say salam. So what does Salat al-Janazah look like in the Hanafi school? The body is brought. Bodies um, in front of you with the head to the right and you're facing the Qibla. Okay. For the Imam and then people are behind the Imam. There's no prostration. There's no Ruku or anything in, in Janazah. It's all standing. You get ready to pray. Make intention. You have wudu. Say Allahu Akbar. Raise your hands. You say Allahu Akbar. After the first Allahu Akbar, Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik, tabarakasmuk wa ta'ala jadduk wa la ilaha ghayruk. The other madhabs, they read Surah Al-Fatiha. Hanafi school, you don't. You read this, Tana. Or you read Surah Al-Fatiha with the intention of it being dua or dhikr and not Quran. So then it takes the place of the Tana. So again, you know, usually like if I'm leading, it depends on who's there. If it's a bunch of like uh, Desi people or something like that, then I'll say we do Thanat because I know they're Hanafi. But if it's kind of a mixed audience, I might say, because usually when you lead Janazah, you tell people what to do beforehand because many people don't know how to pray Janazah. So you tell them we're going to make, we, we're going to standing only, we make four takbirat. After the first takbir, you say this. After the second one, you say this. So I tell them after the first takbir, you can say the thana or you can say Fatiha. So you could do either one, really. Say Allahu Akbar, do one of those. You read it, and you say Allahu Akbar. In the Hanafi school, you don't raise your hands again. Say Allahu Akbar. And then you will make salah on the Prophet, so I said them after the second. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala ali Muhammad kama salli ta'ala Ibrahim wa ala ali Ibrahim innaka hamidu fil alameen innaka hamidu majid. Allahumma barak ala Muhammad wa ala ali Muhammad kama barak ta'ala Ibrahim wa ala ali Ibrahim fil alameen innaka hamidu majid. Right? Then you say, Allahu Akbar. And now that's your third one. After the third one, you make dua for the deceased and for people in general. There's different duas you can make. Uh, make dua for them and for everyone. Then afterwards, you don't raise your hands. Afterwards, you say, Allahu Akbar. And then he says, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. That's Salat al Janazah. That is Salat al Janazah. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. By doing this now, we finished purification and prayer. And we're going to suffice with that in this seminar, inshallah. Barakallahu fikum, may Allah accept from us and from you. For the people on Zoom, uh, if you have any questions. Please feel free to share them or type them or whatever. Uh, or if you have other, you know, we can always talk offline too. If you want to send them to me or if you want to do a call or something and we can go through them, we can do that as well. Type. This is meant to be very quick. If you go back through it and you have questions, if you go back through it and you have questions, uh, of course, feel free to ask them. Uh, there are people who have taught this, of course, in more detail. Like locally, IOK has a good class, right? IOK has a, um, a Salat class you can take, I think, in the extension. 
it'll go over things in more detail. And of course, mashallah, other teachers are strong in the Hanafi school. <clears throat> I don't know who else has it. Seekers, Seekers Guidance has good, uh, the various levels of, of fifth classes. So those are also good things to do, but this is meant to be like super, super quick. Just like, okay, I need to, I don't want to specialize in this. I'm just a regular Muslim. I just really want to know the basics and everything that's outside of this, I'll just ask someone as it comes up and I'll deal with it. Right. So that's, that's like absolute minimum we're trying to do. That's why in this seminar, we cover absolute minimum of purification and prayer, absolute minimum of belief in God and absolute minimum of uh, spirituality and spiritual practices over the course of these four and a half hours. Alhamdulillah. So barakallahu fikum, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to accept from us and to forgive us and to pardon us and to overlook any of our mistakes. And we ask Allah to give us a proper understanding of him and who he is and who his prophets were. And we ask him to make us firm on the path of trying to know him, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we ask him to help us to perfect inwardly and outwardly our purification and our prayer and all of our acts of worship. Allahumma ameen. Sallallahu Muhammad